Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. I want you to open your Bibles right now. Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book in the Bible. And uh, we've been in this series that we're calling Resilient Church. And it's where we're looking at these seven letters that Jesus sends to seven different churches. Um, if you're going to have a resilient church, you got to have resilient people. Um, the goal is to help us see what was great about these churches. So in these letters, if you've been kind of following along with us, Jesus, uh, he always gives a, a commendation to the church. Hey, this is what's great about you. And so when we read that, we want to say this. If we're, we want to be a resilient church, read the commendations and go, how could we be more like that? But Jesus also writes an awful lot of corrections to these churches. Like, hey, this is what's great about you, but this is how you failed. And when we read that, if we're going to be a resilient church, I want us to read it as a warning and ask, are we like that? And, and maybe change the road that we're on. And today is one of those um, that is a lot like a correction. So week one, you had this church in Ephesus. They were a strong church, but they weren't a loving church. Remember that? And last week we talked about the church in Smyrna and they were a suffering church. The church today that we're going to read about, um, they are a, well, they're a compromising church. Let me explain it this way. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, a bunch of you have. If you've never been there, I guarantee you've at least seen pictures of it. It is a beautiful, majestic hole in the ground. And what's the number one rule when you go to the Grand Canyon? Don't fall in the hole. But every year, someone falls in the hole. Watch this video. This woman is shooting a picture of her mom, and they're both standing out on the edge of the canyon. And it looks all good, right? But first of all, why are you standing that close to the edge? And she goes to take a picture. She takes a step back. And that's how compromise happens. <laughs> compromise is this. You thought that I was going to show you a video of someone falling to their death, didn't you? Like, Pastor Scott, he just liked that. He shows us videos that are crazy. I wouldn't do that to you. What's our fascination with getting so close to the edge? Right? Because if you've been there, I've only been there once, but there's like this... There's this rails and these signs and these warnings, and yet it doesn't matter. Why? Because we love to go beyond those, because we're going to get that selfie that's going to get a lot of marks, and somebody's going to be like, oh, that's great. No one cares about your Grand Canyon picture. But we love to play close to the edge. It's an illustration, folks. You and I, we all love to play close to the edge of compromise. So here's what we're going to talk about. We're talking about the slippery slope of moral compromise. Compromise, um, And I, I want to give you a little perspective, because if you're not a Christian, you might think like you're predicting where this message is headed. Pastor's going to tell us 
all the ways that we need to follow the rules and behave and maybe, because that might be what Jesus writes in his letter. But let me give you a, a second thought on this. Even if you're not a Christian, you have your own standards and your own values, right? We all do. I mean, none of us live value-free as if like we don't have our own standards. We say, these are the things I'm about and these things over here, I would never do that. I'm just not about that. But you know what I know about Christians and non-Christians alike? We all play close to the edge. And there are always moments in our life where we do compromise, Christians and non-Christians alike. The difference is Christians, when they look at their areas of like, this is what I'm about and this is what I'm against, they actually allow the words of Jesus and the Holy Scriptures to guide them. To say, if Jesus says, this is what it means to be a follower of me, then this is how I'm going to live. And this is what our text is about, the church in Pergamum. It's about the slippery slope of compromise. So here's we go. We're going to read this. To the church of Pergamum, I'm chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to read the whole passage through, and then we'll break this down. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is God's word, and I can clearly state this. Most of us have no idea what this is talking about. And so I want to pause for just a moment and ask God to give us his wisdom and then jump into explaining what this really means. So God, would you give us your eyes to see the truth? And would you give us your heart? Help us to see the dangers that you warn us about and compromise. And help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So since we all deal with compromise at certain times in our lives, I'm not saying every day, all the time, just during your life, whether you're a Christian or not, you will slide down that slippery slope at one point. So I want to talk about what that looks like. Here's number one. Ready? Compromise begins when suffering softens our convictions. When you're dealing with suffering and a difficult life, what it's doing, it's actually softening you to your moral convictions. Let me explain it. I get this directly from the text. Apparently... Pergamum was in the hood. It's in a bad place, a rough part of town. Listen to what he writes. I know where you live. I don't think he's saying this, like, hey, I'm gonna warn you, you better behave. I know where you live. I don't think it's what he's saying. He's like, I know where you live. Then he says, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You, do not, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. That's a rough neighborhood where Satan lives. 
Now, this letter has so many symbols. We have to decode this, and it's going to require some explanation. So I put a bunch of extra information in your notes. They're in a box there. You can take a look at that. A couple questions. What is the throne of Satan? Some people believe this. Commentators write books on, uh, on their historical research behind this. They think it might have been the fact that Pergamum was the religious capital of Asia, now modern-day Turkey, because they had so many pagan religious cults in that town, as well as they were really loyal to the emperor worship from Rome. They also think that um, possibly this temple of Serapis, they have this temple in town. In Pergamum, there's this worship center for the pagan god named Serapis. He is pictured as a, and you can Google this, he's pictured as a bearded man sitting on a throne with a two-pronged fork, pitchfork in one hand, and a three-headed dog on his right side. And he's the god of the underworld. He's essentially the god of hell, the god of evil, and his dog is his guardian. I know some of you like pit bulls. It looks like a pit bull, I'm just saying. Maybe it was that. That's the reason why Jesus, when he writes, when he gives this letter to John to give the church, says, listen, um, Pergamum, it's a rough place where Satan has his throne. Maybe it's the temple of uh, Asclepius. It's the Greek god of medicine and healing. And this is going to be important in just a minute when I start talking about these Greek gods. They're actually fashioned after things that people crave. In the world back then where they didn't have great technology in their medical field, what do you do? If you want health or you want healing, you fashion a god out of your own hands and then you worship that god. So they fashion this god over medicine and health and healing. And then this god has all these, these sons and daughters of, that are all a part of like the medical field and they worship these things. Now it's, it's weird, right? I mean, when we say it, it's weird. You built something with your own hands and then you worship it as if it's a god, right? Man, if I have to worship something that I built myself, I'm in trouble. But people do this because they crave something. In this case, they crave health and they crave healing the same way that you and I do. Now, whatever Jesus meant by saying that there is a throne of Satan in your town, it created an environment where this guy Antipas, a Christian, he's killed for his faith. And I think it's interesting that in a, in a letter written to a church about compromise, that there's a guy in town who was willing to die for his faith and they're commending him. It's like, man, you guys have not renounced my name. You haven't compromised. You've been willing to die for me. But his criticism is not that you were willing to die for me. His criticism is this. You just haven't been willing to live for me. You get it? He's like, listen, some of you, you're like, oh, I'm going to die a Christian. I'm never going to renounce the name of Jesus. But this church in Pergamum, there were some folks there who weren't willing to carry the values of Jesus forward into their culture. They weren't willing to represent him well. So this kind of threat and suffering, what happens is this. It just wears people down. If you're familiar with recovery, addiction recovery, do you know the term HALT? H-A-L-T. It's an acronym. It stands for this. Uh, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. There are four warning signs. 
If you are feeling any one of those things, two of those things, or all four of those things, they're warning signs. Watch out. You're about to step back into your addiction. Why? It's human nature. When you are suffering, when you are struggling, you're going to try to appease the hurt with some kind of pleasure. And that's what addiction is. When you're hurting, you just step into it and you know it's wrong. You know it's bad for you. It's the slippery slope. The edge of the slippery slope or maybe a mile from the slippery slope is when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely or when you're tired. And I think this is still how it happens today because suffering softens our convictions. And so just a quick question for you. How are you doing with your convictions? When the things you say, I'm about this and I'm never going to do this. We all have those lists, whether you're a Christian or not. How strong are they right now? Ask it this way. How's your hunger? How's your halt? I mean, your loneliness, your tiredness. When you're in pain, just be aware that your your convictions are softening whether you realize them or not. And most of us don't realize that they're softening until we're sliding. The second thing is this, compromise rarely kicks down our front door. Go back to the text, uh, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So this is where Jesus' correction comes in. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, we'll get to this, who taught Barak, Balak, excuse me, not Barak, Balak, uh, to entice the Israelites to sin, verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right. We're going to need a lot of help in understanding what this was. So what was the teaching of Balaam? You would have to go to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 22. Uh, I'm just going to explain it. We're not going to have time to go there. Uh, You'd have to read the next four chapters after that. The, The story is when God's people are coming out of Egypt. He rescues them. They're wandering in the desert. And God's promised them a promised land. They've been defeating their enemies on this this triumphant journey to the promised land. And they get outside the city of Moab. And the king of Moab, his name is Balak, where he knows he can't win a military battle against God's people. He knows he's going to be defeated. So he calls this guy by the name of Balaam. He's a sorcerer. He's a mystic. He's someone who is this pagan priest who will call down curses on people. So the king's like, if I can't win a military victory, I'm going to try and win a spiritual victory. Maybe if I could get Balaam to have God call a curse down on on these Israelites, maybe then we could beat them and we're not going to be defeated. So uh, the story goes like this. If you actually read it, it sounds like Balaam is actually like a prophet of God. He's not. He's a pagan Sorcerer is what he is. But when you read it, it it sounds like God is actually speaking through him and to him. But don't ever make a mistake. He's actually this pagan sorcerer. And the king's like, I want you to come and I want you to call down a curse. So Balaam says this, I can't do whatever my God doesn't allow me to do. And so the king's like, no, no, you have to call a curse down on these people. So Balaam shows up and he goes to speak a curse against Israel. And what comes out of his mouth is a blessing. And this goes on and on. There's like three or four different times where every time the king is like, you don't understand, you got to call down a curse. And Balaam starts speaking, out comes this blessing for Israel. God will not allow his people to be cursed. So in the end, Balaam doesn't curse them. 
But Balaam is like, why do you want me to curse a people? That's not how you get them to compromise. Because compromise doesn't come and kick in your front door. You know how compromise shows up? Compromise shows up as a friend. Compromise is actually welcomed to your table by you. Let me read this to you. This is in Numbers chapter 5. Now picture this. Israel, this nation that is about to conquer Moab, is set up right near this city of Moab. Numbers chapter 25 verse 1 reads this way. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, this false god, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The enemy doesn't kick down their door. The enemy saunters in and address. This is not a negative statement about women, okay? Like, beware the woman. No, 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 no. This is a statement about these men that are like, man, do you see those mobile women? Compromise began when they allowed these women to come in. Compromise actually dated their way into them. And they invited them in. So now these women are in their house and they're having these relationships. And so now when these women pull out their little statue of their pagan God, the guys are like, whatever, what can it hurt? I mean, we've already kind of violated a couple of our standards here. Like, what's one more standard going to be? And by the way, we always know we're compromising when we get to the mental thought of like, well, we've already done this. Why not do it again? We've already done this. Why not this? Is anybody really going to care? Is anybody really going to be hurt? Um, back in Revelation 2, Jesus then mentions these practices of the, the Nicolaitans and what they taught. Um, and I'll tie this all together in just a moment, so hang with me. These Nicolaitans, are, they're Christians who got off track. And it's believed that if you go to Acts 6 and you read the list of the first deacons, you remember that they pick people to wait on tables? Uh, Nicholas is one of these first deacons. They believe this, that it was probably Nicholas, one of the deacons that started believing this false thing called dualism. Dualism is this. The only thing that matters in the Christian life is your spirit. Like your body doesn't really matter. There's your spirit and your body. And I know that your spirit lives in your body, but they're, they're two separate things. Therefore, to keep your spirit clean, it doesn't matter what your body does. So you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want, as long as your spirit. It's almost like someone saying, you know what, I just have a good heart. I'm just a good person. I have really good intentions. You know, I, there's some things in my life over here that, like, you know, they just, they're kind of, I, I know, maybe, I'm not real proud of them, but like, that's just something I do on Friday. I'm at church on Sunday. And there's this dualism in their life. And so these Nicolaitans, the way it worked for them in the town of Pergamum, um, when you would go to the, the, the meat, hmm, let me say it this way, the meat market, try that again. When you go to the meat market for sale there, you would have meat that was just sacrificed to idols. And the New Testament is super clear. It states it a lot, multiple times. Don't ever buy, don't ever eat this meat sacrificed to idols. But Nicholas, 
It's assumed that he walks in and just goes, guys, listen, who cares? It's just meat. I, I know previously in this letter of Acts, it's written, don't eat that. But listen, does it really matter? It's just meat. And, and again, that's just your body. It's not your spirit. Jesus loves you anyways. And so he's leading the church and these Christians into accepting not just this meat, but it's a slippery slope. It's one step closer to these pagan cults that they're just going to slide into, just like the Moabites. And a part of the, the temple practice there would be temple prostitution. And you're thinking, like, how crazy is that? Like, how does someone, how does a pagan cult get into that? It's the things we crave, people, right? If you crave a family and you crave fertility, you fashion an idol and a god of fertility. And as a part of that, you have these temple prostitutes. And so when it talks about the practices of these Nicolaitans, it says they enticed the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. That is what is happening in this church at Pergamum. Not with the whole church, but with some of them. It leads to this third point. Compromise rationalizes our craving for provision and belonging. Meat. You might be vegan. Ignore this next part. Meat, gotta have it. Daddy needs a steak. God, would you provide for us? God, we're really concerned, God, that the rains aren't coming, that the wheat harvest isn't gonna be there. God, we're really concerned that you're not gonna provide for us. So I'm gonna fashion a little idol that is about God providing for us. I mean, think about it. What did the Egyptians worship? A sun God, a water God, a rain God? All the things that made provision possible. God, would you provide for me? Think about our world today. How many of us in the Silicon Valley are worried about God providing for us? And it's not even, for a lot of us, it's not even providing the daily necessities. It's providing the get ahead, providing the retirement, providing the, God, I got to get ahead of everybody else. God, make me rich. And we want that provision so bad that we're willing to fashion a little God so that we might be blessed. God, I'm going to worship my work. In the midst of this, this is the sins. And compromise starts rationalizing our craving for provision and belonging. Um, so why are the Christians running after this? I think they're running after the very same thing that you and I desire. For me, it's provision. When it comes to sex, can we just talk straight for a minute here? We all want to belong somewhere. We all want to be loved. We all want to be wanted. We all want intimacy. And when we don't get that in the context of a relationship, we're willing to substitute sex for actual belonging and intimacy. It happens in our world all the time. And it can happen with us. We all want to belong, which means we're all susceptible to stepping closer to the edge of something we said we would never do, never belong to, never be a part of. Because often it's not even about the sex. It's about the intimacy. It's about the belonging. It's about the approval of another person for us. So as I walk us through this, point four is this. Compromise thinks that there's always time to return to Jesus until there isn't. <laughs> 
And I wonder if you've thought about it this way. If you go back to verse 12, Jesus introduces himself to this church. There's a pattern to every letter, right? Jesus always says, um, this is the one writing to you. I am the one who, and then he describes himself. Do you remember what he described himself as right here? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. It's an instrument of judgment. It's a warning and a threat. The the sword is this symbol that he's going to show up in Pergamum and administer justice because of their compromise. But then he gives them this message of hope. Go, Go to verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, the them is really important. Is he going to fight everybody? Who's he going to fight against? His warning is this. He's going to fight against those who have led God's people astray and against those who have compromised. He's clear. He's saying time is running out. And most most of us might think like, oh yeah, that's the second return of Jesus when he's coming back in the end, right? So he actually hasn't come back. No, no. Most commentators believe this. His warning is about when he would actually visit Pergamum. This is before his, his return where the end is the end. And he would discipline those people in that city. And most people believe this, that he's pleading with them to turn back to him. But here's what we know about compromise. Compromise thinks there's always time to get it right. There's always time to turn back to Jesus until there isn't. Come on, have you rationalized this? Hey, I know I'm getting it wrong right now, but there's always tomorrow. We'll get it right tomorrow. I'll get it right next week. Listen, pastor, when I go to church, I see a lot of people in their like 40s. I'm 20. I'll come back eventually. I'm going to college. I'm doing my thing right now. Then I'm in my 20s. I'm just going to do my thing right now. There's always time to come back to Jesus. Until there isn't. Whether your life is cut short or Jesus returns, tomorrow is promised to no one. And he's saying this as a sign of hope. It's not to scare you. It's to say, don't waste another day. Come back to me and walk away from the edge of compromise. I want to give you a prayer that maybe we could uh, pray. Just listen to this real quick. and We have one more point and then we'll, we'll close. God, open my eyes so I can see my sin the way you do. Think about that for a minute. Because when we start sliding down the slippery slope, sin tastes good. I mean, it's actually the thing we crave. It just leads us down a road and a place where we never want to be. But what if we said this? God, would you open my eyes so that I could see my sin the way you do? Because it leads to this next part. God, would you let me be horrified by my compromise? I mean, what if we prayed that? God, if I saw it the way that you saw it and you're horrified by it, God, would you help me to feel what you feel? Would you help me to be horrified so that I might hate what you hate and love what you love? Because the truth is, a lot of us, we just play games with this. Like, listen, it's not that bad. Would we invite God to actually change what we see, what we think, and what we feel about our sin? Lastly, I'm going to read this to you and wrap up with a fifth point, and then we'll pray. 
Verse 17, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. Underline hidden manna. Explain that in a minute. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, this is going to be, uh, require a little bit of explanation. Here it is. What is the hidden manna and what is the white stone? Uh, you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? How'd it get lost? Do you know this? When the Babylonians were coming in to conquer the Israelites and they had this Ark of the Covenant. By the way, the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol. It's this box that has religious paraphernalia inside. And it was the symbol of God's presence, protection, and provision for his people. And the Babylonians are coming in and King Josiah is like, we're never letting the ark be taken over by another country. So he hides it and it's the lost ark. Y'all are up to speed on the movie now. Inside this ark is a jar with manna in it. Why? Remember when they're traveling out of Egypt through the desert, wandering 40 years, God feeds them every day with manna. The symbol that he will provide for us. One of the things that the Israelites carried with them, <laughs> carried with them outside the city of Moab that he was talking about in, 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 with Balaam and Balak. I mean, they're carrying with them manna. The symbol that every day God's provided for them. And yet it didn't stop them from compromising. So Jesus in this part, he says this. Hey, listen up to the one who's victorious. I'm going to give some hidden manna, the thing that's been missing, that's been hidden away that you don't know about, that you don't know where it is. If you're victorious, I will be your provider. Do we believe that? I mean, do you believe that? That if you say, I follow Jesus and I'm not going to compromise I'm going to have these values that I live by. I'm going to follow him. So I'm not going to cut corners. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to do it the way everybody else does it. I'm going to do it Jesus' way. And because of that, I'm going to trust that he's got hidden manna, provision for me. It doesn't mean he's going to make you rich. Manna in the desert didn't make them rich. Manna kept them alive that God's got your back and he's going to provide for you. Do you see the connections now between all this? Then he states this, I'm going to give that person a white stone with a new name written on it and known only to the one who receives it. Okay, okay. What is this white stone about? Uh, There's a pastor, uh, works over in Santa Cruz area named Renee Schleppler, great pastor. He actually went, before he taught on this, he went to... um, all of these cities, took a whole group and they traveled the area. And he writes this about Pergamum. He says, when you get to Pergamum, one of the things you'll notice, there's all these round white stones as a part of the natural landscape of the area. And with all these white stones around, there was a tradition, some things that they used to do. You would take a white stone and I will paraphrase some of what he wrote here. He says, friends made special packs with them, like covenants. You take that flat stone And you would cut it in two. Your friend's half would have a nickname chosen for you by your friend. And you'd have your friend's name. And from then on, you would always be welcomed into each other's home. It's a a stone of belonging. 
It's a stone that you are known. It's a nickname for you that only they would know. Even after your death, if one of your descendants presented that stone at one of your friend's descendants' home, they would welcome them in. All because of a special nickname written on a stone. Because you would choose a nickname known only by that intimate family. That name was hidden. Secret like a password. It says, I believe that this verse is saying that one day you will stand before the God who made you. Listen to this. And he will hand you an engraved invitation that means you will always be welcomed at his feast. And on it will be Jesus's secret nickname for you. I think it will be the word you've most wanted to hear your whole life. Something God sees in you, calls out in you, has created in you. And it's the word, maybe it's courageous, beautiful, strong, beloved, faithful. I hope you're getting this. The compromise of the church was this eating of meat and sexual immorality. It's not about the meat. It's not actually about the sex. The thing that was driving them was their craving for provision and their craving for belonging and intimacy. And in the end, Jesus says this, don't compromise. I will give you this hidden manna because I'm your provider. And that stone that you guys know so well in the city of Pergamum, I have one with your nickname written on it because you belong to me. I am the place where you will find your belonging. Does it all make sense now? Their cravings drove them to do these things and Jesus answers with no, look to me and I will take care of your needs. That fifth and final point is this. Compromise loses its appeal when Christians see Jesus as their provider. Look at me. Are we willing to say, God, I got compromise in my life. Well, I'm going to start looking to you for my, as my provider, my belonging. I'm putting you first in my life. Um, I want to remind you uh, today... I am here to shame no one today. If you've got compromise in your life, you know what it is, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Can I just say this? Jesus gives you an invitation, not to shame you, but to say that he loves you and he's welcoming you home. Come back to me. But it leaves us with a choice to make. And so I I, want to say two things. One, I'm going to invite us to pray a prayer and our band's going to come out and We're going to have a worship moment, but I'm I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, But in this prayer, I want to make sure I'm super clear about this, because this can be confusing. Because there's some of you in the room, you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. You've never asked him to forgive you and, and trust that his death on the cross paid for your sins. You never even thought about the resurrection. You thought it was a myth. No, he came back to life. And that's the promise that there's a life after this life that he invites us. We, we get to go to heaven and be a part of his, his kingdom. Are you, are you with me? If you're not a Christian, you might make this mistake. All right, I have to have higher values. Oh, I can't, I got to stop compromising. Listen, don't miss this. You can never behave your way into the kingdom of God. It's not about adopting a higher morality. It's about you 
trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you receive forgiveness. He has so much grace and mercy for you. So please don't take this as, oh, I need to live a better life. No, no, you need to have a relationship with Jesus. That's the invitation. Now, if you're a Christian, Jesus says, you're mine. I mean, you're in my family. When I adopt you, I don't unadopt you. But you know who the most miserable people on the planet are? They're not non-Christians. Because most of them, they're out there having some kind of fun, following their cravings. The most miserable people on the planet are Christians who are sliding down a slippery slope of compromise, knowing that they're not happy with where they're at. Feeling like, does God really love me? I don't deserve it. Listen, before, when you weren't a Christian, you didn't deserve his love then anyways. What makes you think that you're going to live in such a way that you actually deserve it now? It's not about deserving it. He loves you. But don't live in misery because the slippery slope of compromise is a miserable life. There is no joy there. Want to see this return? Happiness, joy, the thrill of walking with Jesus, then I will say this. Today is a day to say, Jesus, can I come home? Because he's always got a place at the table for you. You just got to walk in the door and be like, Jesus, forgive me. And it's not the forgiveness that you're getting readopted back into his family. You never stopped being his son or his daughter. He's just inviting you to start acting like a child of the king. We will always be near these slopes, and we will always struggle with sin this side of heaven. But please don't use it as, a as an excuse to live a life of compromise. Can we take the warning today and pray this prayer? Bow your heads and just listen to this. And this may be your prayer. God, open my eyes so I can see my sin the way that you do. God, let me be horrified by my compromise. God, help me to hate what you hate and love what you love. God, give me the courage and discipline to keep looking to you as my provider. As your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, um, that prayer really is a prayer for people who are Christians. If you have yet to give your life to Christ, maybe today's the day. Maybe you'll stop saying, you know what, there's always tomorrow. I'll get it right then. If you need to become a Christian today, your prayer's different. God, I surrender my life to you. Forgive me. I believe that your death on the cross was a payment for my sins so that I could be forgiven and adopted into your family. Today, Jesus, I choose you to be my savior, to rescue me and save me. And today, Jesus, I choose you to be my Lord, my master, the one who sets the standard of my life. If that's your prayer today, you need to cross that line of faith and become a Christian today, I invite you to just pray that. You put in your own words. Eyes closed, heads bowed. If you need to give your life to Christ today, I want you to do this. Just put your hand in the air. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not even going to single you out. I just want you to know that you're praying this prayer. So stick it up in the air. I'm going to look around. Okay. 
okay? Let me pray for you. God, I pray for those in this room that somewhere this morning, you put a finger on their heart and maybe it was an area of compromise. Lord, maybe it was just the distance that they have with you. And I know that there's people in this room that this is the first day they've ever called on your name and become a Christian. So God, would you bless, would you protect, would you be our provider, the one that provides for for all that we need in this life, including our belonging, that we wouldn't turn to things that are empty, that harm us, but God, we would turn to you every day. And if you want that, agree with that. Would y'all say amen? Amen.